Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, Start Spreading the News, where we discuss the importance of evangelism. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. The message this morning is called The Gospel for Nominals and Know-It-Alls. And so this morning we're talking about sharing the gospel with people who have belief, but not saving faith as we would call it. About people who already know about Christianity and find it mostly agreeable even as they understand it, but, but don't find it worth orienting their whole life around. About why people need the gospel and how we might approach sharing it with them when they think that they're already good with God. So in eighth grade, I went to a friend's birthday party. It was just me, the birthday boy, and his other friend. And the birthday boy was a latchkey kid. A single parent dad worked in construction. And so I went to his house, and, and uh, there were no parents. It was just the three of us. So we, we played some hoops, pretty much all I did, no matter where I went at that age. And, and then we came inside, and we played some video games, typical eighth grade stuff. Uh, and we did that before deciding to go down the street a mile or two to Drug Mart. Discount Drug Mart, in fact. Save you the runaround. <laughs> drug Mart would have snacks, videos to rent at the time, video games to rent. It was connected to a pizza shop, uh, the local Giannino's, and it was just a 10-minute bike ride away, again, truly saving us the runaround. So we hopped on his bikes uh, that he had at his house. He had some extra bikes, which is a luxury, and, and we took off down the street towards Drug Mart. We went, we did our thing. We left Drug Mart with a ton of snacks, uh, a few video rental selections, and maybe grabbed a pizza. I don't quite remember. But all of us, we had our hands full, way too full to hop on bikes. And so my friend, the birthday boy, he said we'd, we'd stash the bikes in the woods by Drug Mart. We'd walk back to his house, and then we would return later to get the bikes. No problem. And that's exactly what we did. His dad came home uh, a little bit later, and after a few minutes of joking around with us boys, he said, hey, where are your bikes? Now, this friend had said that his dad wouldn't like it if we left the bikes because they might get stolen, which is why we put them in the woods where no one would see them, but our friend did not tell us what the story was going to be or clearly even plan out what he would say if his dad noticed they were gone. So the three of us we're not on the same page. Those of you that have teenage boys are like, yeah, I can see how this would go. And so my friend, he responded to the question of, where are the bikes, by blurting out, they got stolen while we were in Drug Mart. I said nothing out loud, but in my head I was screaming, you idiot. I was a kid who never got in trouble. You can check those facts with my mom after church. And, and I certainly didn't want to get in trouble with this guy's dad. Now, now, the details get a bit fuzzy because I am old. But as I remember it, the dad called the cops. The cops went to Drug Mart. The cops, expert detectives in Minerva, found the bikes stashed in the woods just across the parking lot from Drug Mart. We were free to go and retrieve the bikes. I wanted to go home at this point, but that seemed to violate some like eighth grade bro code of like, 
bailing on this man, this young man, you know, on his birthday with his furious dad. So his dad and the cops, they didn't really think that someone stole three bikes to joyride them 50 yards to the woods and nicely park them there, kick stands up and everything, right? So we went, we got the bikes, and when we got home, my friend, he confessed. His dad didn't love the true story of what happened or the fact that his son lied at first. So he did like a kind of a decent amount of swearing at us. Uh, then he grabbed my friend's, I can still picture him, he grabbed my friend's birthday money, slid it off this dresser and said, I'm going to the bar. Now I'm not super close with this kid and I barely know his dad, so I'm terrified that this dude's going like, to go get hammered and come back and whoop me and this kid for his horribly dumb idea that I had nothing to do with, right? Even though I didn't really go along with it, I didn't say anything really. I maintain my innocence to this day, as you can tell. But he came back from the bar. He didn't seem super drunk. He didn't, like, whoop us, thankfully. But he, he sternly talked to us for what seemed like five hours. At one point, this dad, who I had heard an extensive amount of profanity from, who, who took his kid's birthday money to go to the bar because he was so furious with three dumb but pretty young kids, during his stern talking to, he looked at me and he said to me, so, so you're a pretty religious kid, aren't you? And I said, I mean, yes, I'm a Christian. And he said, I'm a Christian too. He might as well have told me he was a flamingo at that point. It would have been equally believable to me, even at that age. And I said, wow, that's good. What church do you go to? He said, I don't go to church. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I walked away from that conversation thinking, even at my young age, sure, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And not going to church doesn't mean you're not one. I understood that even at that age. But something about this guy just feels like it's not legit, right? Like, sure, I only had a snapshot, but it seemed like Jesus had no influence over, at least in that evening, his life, his decisions that night, not only the things he did, the things he said. He never said, yeah, I got a little carried away tonight with how frustrated I got. He just seemed to believe that the, the things that he thought, valued, or did had no bearing on the answer to the question as to whether or not he was a Christian and vice versa. And I certainly hope that he was. I certainly hope that he is. But I walked away thinking that while he was sure he was a Christian, I was not. I was not so sure. How could that be? And what does that mean for our evangelism? It must be the case that there is a, a section of the population that believes that they are Christian but actually need to hear the gospel and repent and believe, doesn't it? Dean and Sarah's book, The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel, is a great resource for the topic. It has informed much of this message today, and it speaks to this important issue of our day. While we are in a moment in time where the world is becoming increasingly post-Christian, which we will discuss next week, we are in a specific place where there are a lot of cultural Christians, people who identify as Christian because of their political views, their family heritage, or for other reasons. They might identify as Christian without being Christian. They are Christian by culture, not Christian by conviction, to use in Sarah's words. And these are people that we rub shoulders with every day. As I've mentioned up here more than a few times at this point, we're doing ministry in a place one city official described as the Bible Belt of Northeast Ohio. 
And so in Sarah, in his book, uh, tells a story about him and a friend right after seminary. Um, he, his friend and he, they were packing up their cars in the same parking lot alongside one another, ready to, to hop in those cars and leave for their ministry assignments to start their pastoral ministry. And his friend was going to California, and he was going back home to the Bible Belt South. And, and he tells the story like this. He said, I felt like I was taking the easy road, and Matt, his friend, was taking the courageous one. I said, I really admire what you're doing, and, and, and I'll pray for you as you head to an area with, with such an important, great commission need. And his friend Matt's reply was not what he was expecting, he says. He says, his, his friend said, whatever. The Bible Belt is the most difficult place in America to pastor a local church. In California, there is rarely confusion. Either you're a Christian or you're not. In the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians, but have no, no concept of the severity of sin, the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. They think they're just fine with God, and God is fine with them because they aren't atheists and have been to church before as a kid. It's almost like you have to help get them lost so that they can actually be saved. They believe in God, but, not, but do not believe their sin has done anything to separate them from him or cause them to need the Jesus they claim to believe in. Did you catch that? It's almost like you have to help them get lost so that they can actually be saved. And this is much of the work of evangelism in the Bible Belt, or even the Bible Belt that is is Lake Township in Northeast Ohio. It's a lot of what it looks like to evangelize here, I think. And you might ask, like, okay, maybe this makes this sounds logical, but is there a biblical precedent for this idea? In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus tells of the fate of some people who claim to be spiritually right with God. And so we must believe that he's right. I mean, he's talking about himself when he says, I will announce to them. So you can't really disagree with him. Like, come on, Jesus, you, you wouldn't do that, would you? He's, he's saying he will, in fact, do that, say that to many people one day. But we don't want, to th we don't want there to be people who th that thing is true of, people who think they're right with God when they aren't. What can we observe about this passage? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, yikes, he says, many will say to me on that day, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And now you read this, and at first you're like, boy, am I in trouble, right? They're, they're not getting in, and they've done all this stuff. I've never prophesied. I haven't encountered, let alone drove out a single demon. I haven't, I haven't done a single miracle. What chance do I have? But here's the thing. You gotta, you gotta notice their questions. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, 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 it, it's self-focused. They're saying, Jesus, look at my work. 
Look at my work. Look what I've done. Isn't it enough? All these good things, aren't they enough? I did all these things for you, Jesus, and you can't let me into your kingdom? These things seem like the will of the Father, right? And yet Jesus says, away from me, you lawbreakers. I never knew you. How, when they're doing all these things in his name, could he, could he say that? They were trying to get by on doing the Father's will, and really the Father's will is that you would lean on the finished work of the one who actually did perfectly live into and walk in the will of God. The one who never once strayed from God's will, Jesus himself. On that day, so many will say to him, didn't we go to church most Sundays? Didn't we vote this way? Didn't we stand against abortion? Didn't we stand for a certain view of marriage? Didn't we go to FCA meetings in school? Didn't we take our kids to youth group? Tonight at five, by the way. Didn't we say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays? Didn't we do all of these things? And some of them are good things. Didn't we give to charity? Didn't we serve at the soup kitchen the first Friday of every month? Didn't we go to that prayer meeting that Joey won't stop talking about? Didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? And Jesus will say, yes, you did a lot of those things, but unfortunately, I never knew you. Because someone who knows Jesus knows this. Their good works are not going to get them into the kingdom. Didn't we is nearly the wrong question 100% of the time in the situation described in the passage we just read. Didn't you would be the proper question. Jesus, didn't you come to seek and save people like me? And not only that, but out of your mercy, didn't you find me? Jesus, didn't you live a life of perfect submission to the Father? Jesus, didn't you say, not my will, but yours be done, and actually mean it in that garden? Jesus, didn't you willingly give up your life on a cross for my sins? Jesus, didn't you not only die, but on the third day, weren't you raised again? Jesus, didn't you die for me for all my sins so that instead of the death I deserve, I would get new life, eternal life in you, the thing that your performance deserved? Didn't you, Jesus? Didn't you? Didn't you? The only didn't I question may be appropriate in this instance is didn't I throw all of my hope on what you've done instead of the things that I do, Jesus? Didn't I do that? Cultural Christianity is a religion of earning your own way. I just have to be good enough. The next four words that I'm about to say are not going to be shocking to you. And Home Alone 2 which I referred to last week, and I am so sorry that this is how I am, especially leading up to Advent, but it snowed last week. And plus, this is too perfect of an example. In Home Alone 2, Kevin McAllister befriends a homeless woman, basically just known as the Pigeon Woman. And they have this interaction, and I'm sorry, by the way, that the subtitles are janky. I'm sure our live stream will get taken down for even showing this video. Um, Somebody added these subtitles, but I think it gets the point across. to trouble? Yeah. You've done something wrong? A lot of things. 
Did you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? It's getting pretty late. I don't know if I'll have enough time to do all the good deeds. I need to erase all the bad ones I did. Well, it's Christmas Eve. Good deeds count for extra tonight. They do? Of course they do. So what you must do now is you must think of the most important thing that you can do for others and go and do it. Just follow the star in your own heart. That is not terrific advice. Please hear me say that. It's at least not gospel-centered advice. Christmas movies, and especially Home Alone 1 and 2, but never any after that, are a lot of my, I mean, they're not even real after that. Those are a lot of my pop culture references, but you could have named countless movies, I'm sure, and I would love to hear afterwards what ones you think of, that display the same set sentiment. It's, it's all over the culture. A good deed erases a bad deed. This is what many cultural Christians believe, and so we become the kind of people that would say to Jesus, didn't I, didn't we, didn't I do more good than bad in this world? And Jesus may one day say, I never knew you. Al Mohler has called moral therapeutic deism the new religion of our country, and he identifies its five central tenets as these, and they will sound very familiar to you because you can identify them, again, all over our culture. People you work with, go to school with, and spend the holidays with believe these things. You might even believe some of these things. First, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other is taught in the Bible and most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Make sure you get your double good deed points on Christmas Eve to reverse all the sinning you've done this whole year, right? Does this sound familiar, though? And some of these things sound, are and sound right. Like, we do believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over our lives. That is good and true. And we should do what is good, right, and just. That's true. That doesn't make us particularly Christian, though, in its own right. The central goal of life isn't to be happy or feel good about oneself, though. That isn't the Christian understanding of life. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And to say God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life other than to solve problems? If that's true for you, God has become only useful to you, and you do not love him. Christians are people for whom God is not only useful, but more than that, Christians find God to be beautiful. They love him for who he is and not just what he can do for them. And good people go to heaven when they die? I hope not. The Bible would tell us we're all doomed if that's the case. But you might say, what if people do believe the right things? What, what if they aren't people who believe those five things sort of that... Um, that build to good people go to heaven when they die? What if you get the sense that they have a more theologically robust cultural Christianity, but they still don't seem Christian to you? Do you understand what I mean? They, they say the right things, but they don't seem to really love Jesus. How is it that that could be? Maybe they can recite the Apostles' Creed and have no real problems with the beliefs that it espouses. 
You might be saying, after all, Joey, doesn't John 3.16 say, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it does. But James 2.19 says this, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So is the Bible in contradiction? What do we do with this? God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And then James says, you believe good, so do the demons. And, and the demons, we obviously don't think, have eternal life in Christ, right? So, so what gives? Are, are there people that believe that will perish? And I think the question is, what do you mean by believe? It's, it's not just, or it shouldn't just be, Jesus is Lord? Okay, sure, I believe that. A saving faith is one that trusts Jesus and not our own goodness to save us from the perishing talked about in John 3.16. That leans on Jesus and not our own merit. And so these folks that Jesus talked about in our first passage who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And he sends them off. Sure, they believed on some level. They did say, Lord, Lord, after all. And they did things in his name. They called Jesus Lord. But it seems that they didn't trust in Jesus. They didn't lean the full weight of their hope on his goodness as if nothing else could hold them up. We're all lawbreakers. But when we trust Christ's work instead of ours, we receive Christ's righteous reward that his perfect life deserves. When we trust our work, no matter how good it is, no matter how many double good deeds you did on Christmas Eve, we end up just dead in our sin. Lawbreakers. Our identity is either, worded, is either rooted in our work or Christ's work. One of those things will last. One of those things will not. One of those things will save us. One will condemn us. The question is, which will you lean on? You can believe in the virgin birth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you can also not in any way let that truth impact your life. You can believe in the facts about Jesus without leaning on Jesus. You can believe in Jesus without putting your faith in Jesus. So whether we're talking about the, the moral therapeutic deist type of Christian where they have the facts sort of wrong about what it even means to be a Christian or they are a, a theologically orthodox unsaved Christian, the question is, how do we engage them in a way where we can lead them towards a life-changing, saving faith relationship with Jesus? And Dean and Sarah, whose book I've mentioned multiple times this morning, has suggestions for what it looks like to evangelize to cultural Christians, and I think that they're helpful. He points out, first of all, that you can start with the God of the Bible, for someone who would say that the Bible is inspired, you can appeal to the Bible's authority. For the segment of the population that we talk about next week, that won't work, but you can appeal to it for these folks. Start with the God of the Bible. If you're getting people lost so they can be saved, as he puts it, or as his friend put it, then you, you need to not ask the question whether there is a God or whether Jesus really rose from the dead because they're going to say yes to all those questions. And it's not going to be particularly helpful. But instead, you can ask if there's a God has he spoken? And when they say yes, you can appeal to what the Bible says. And we can remind them that the God of the Bible is holy. This is the God who, when the first people sinned against him, they, he expelled them from the garden. God's holiness is serious. Really, that whole first movement 
of the gospel that we talked about um, two weeks ago, the fall. They need to hear about that, how sin entered the world and how sin is an offense to a holy God. And if God's holiness is serious, then our sin is serious. When we sin against a holy God, God doesn't chuckle. It's not funny. It's not okay. The Bible tells us the wages of sin are death. The Bible clearly says that apart from Christ, death is our deserved fate. No one is righteous. We are sinners. And so this cultural understanding that good people go to heaven must be disposed of. And the Bible does that just really simply. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who are righteous. And then he suggests lovingly asking frustrating questions. And I agree with him. Good people go to heaven. You can ask questions like, how good of people? How good is good enough? To use a round number of 100, if you do 51 good things and 49 bad things, are you in? Are deeds weighted by severity? And who decides? And how can you know? Like, killing someone isn't just one bad deed, probably, right? And, like, giving someone a house is probably not just, like, one good deed, right? I mean, this isn't meant to be obnoxious. It's meant to help them get to a point of saying, like, I guess I don't really know. And then, if these people who claim they believe in Jesus are still with you, and you can still ask another question, you can ask this question. If good people go to heaven... Why did Jesus have to die? If you just have to be good, what do you need Jesus for? Did he die for people who don't need saving? And if so, that seems senseless, right? And if not, then why do you think that good people go to heaven? What did his death mean? What did his death accomplish? And again, if they tell you, well, I guess I'm not sure, then you're at a beautiful place to tell them why Jesus died to ask them if they've been trusting their own good behavior to to sort of tip the scales in their favor or if they're trusting the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. We look around here in the Midwest and maybe we think, there's not a lot of opportunities for evangelism. You might even have said, everyone I know sort of already believes. But I would urge you not to be judgmental, of course, but to evaluate what they seem to believe for the sake of their own Lives. We cannot assume someone who is good with praying before meals, especially the big ones, you know, Thanksgiving coming up, attends church, at least on holidays, votes a certain way or feels a certain way about social issues, that those things will make them a Christian. They may be, but they may not be. And, and I honestly believe as you sit here, there are people in your life coming to mind that, that claim to be Christians, but, but you, like me, sitting in the living room of the guy who took his son's birthday money to the bar, you have your doubts. What is there to lose by sharing the gospel with someone like that? They think they're a Christian, and if they're right, they might be a little thrown off, but, but ultimately they'll be glad to see the boldness of another Christian sharing their faith, checking in on them. And if they're not, then a bold step, a step of faith in asking some tough questions when the Spirit leads you to at the right time could change their lives forever. You might have to get them lost so that they can actually be saved, but God will help you. Michelle, you can come up. So this morning we've talked about cultural Christianity, Christianity full of the trappings of faith, but void of Christ himself. A Christianity that loves Christendom, but doesn't trust Jesus' finished work on the cross for salvation. 
And I want to encourage you, if you're part of that, if I was describing you this morning, if you got a little bit lost this morning and you're feeling ready to follow Jesus, not to trust in your own goodness anymore, and I'd love for you to tell him that this morning that you're ready to trust in the finished work of Christ. There's a way to go about life where you believe in Jesus and the facts of his life and the way you believe that the grass is green, but at the same time you trust in your own goodness. A little Jesus, a little bit of me behaving myself, and I should get into heaven, right? For people like that, what John Gerstner said rings true when he said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. You need Christ and nothing else for salvation. And if you have Christ, you will become increasingly like him, living a life of peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. None of which saves you, but rather points to the fact that you are saved. So if that's you this morning, I hope you find yourself lost and disoriented for the sake of being found and at peaceful rest in the mercy of Jesus Christ. And if you're already there, if you're already there, a legitimate, born-again, rescued one, then I hope this encourages and empowers you to share the gospel with people who are not. I hope this gives you a few tools and resources to bring up a conversation about Jesus and what it really means to follow him what it really means to know him, what the gospel really says about how one might be saved, about what the consequences of sin really are and what we must do to be forgiven. I hope you'll have gospel conversations with people who already claim that Jesus is their deity of choice. This Jesus who who we know that on the night that he was betrayed took the bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, again giving thanks and saying, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion here every week as a, as a way to remember, to remember that our sin cost Jesus his life, that it would either cost him his life or us our lives. And so he willingly died for us. So there's no need to try to tip the scales of good deeds versus bad deeds That's a completely futile endeavor. Only the Lamb of God could have come to take away the sins of the world. And praise God, he has done it. So we take communion by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Communion is available towards the back on my left, gluten-free, towards the back on my right. Uh, We take communion sort of at our own pace, so whenever you're ready, you can stand up and take communion. My friends Randy and Rachel are going to be available to pray for you on either side of the room. And I would just encourage you that if there's something weighing weighing you down, there's something on your heart that you haven't been able to stop thinking about while you've sat here, that you would just ask somebody to come alongside you in prayer, and they'd love to do that. And so I'm going to pray for you, and then you can take communion whenever you're ready. Father, um, it is a hard truth in the scriptures, a hard truth from the the lips of Jesus that there are people who, who would say, Lord, Lord, and would find that they're not your people. I pray for everyone sitting here this morning that the full weight of their hope would not be on how good they are, the good things they do, but on what you did, what you accomplished on a cross. May we learn more and more what it is to to rest in that sacrifice, to not feel the anxiety of trying to live up to something, but to know that you lived up to it for us And so we're free to be your children, your people. God, I pray that 
that you would bring about a culture of evangelism in this church, people sharing the gospel, whether it be to, to people who admittedly acknowledge that they are nowhere close to being a Christian, or whether it be to people who um, are Christian by heritage, family ties, or culture. I pray that your word would be shared, your gospel would be shared by the people sitting here. God, we love you and we thank you for that good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.